Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Russ Rook, author, speaker, and partner at Good Faith Partnership. I only, there's only certain texts I know off my heart. I know this line off my heart because it means so much to me. He says, with the disciples' faith falling all around, Jesus staked it all on one last act. He took bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Poured wine and said, this is my blood poured out for you. And this idea that Jesus says, look, if, if you don't understand anything about right, understand right. this and uses the act of breaking bread and right. pouring wine. Welcome to Captain's Corner, a podcast about community, mission, and culture. This podcast is a ministry of the Salvation Army of Tampa, where we exist because we believe every person can be the person God has called them to be. Please check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd like to take a moment to recognize our sponsors for helping to make this podcast possible. Thank you to RegisterToRing.com and to a very generous anonymous donor. We hope you guys enjoy the episode. Well, welcome to Captain's Corner. This is Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida. And I have on the line with me, Dr. Russell Rook from the UK, the first person we've ever had on the podcast from the United Kingdom. Welcome, Russell. Hello. <laughs> I, I feel somewhat disappointing that I'm actually in America making this call. Oh, that's right. Not in the UK. Now, now tell everybody why you're in, why you're in America and uh, in our nation's capital at that. Um, because I spend uh, uh, most of my life as a political consultant, and uh, one of my uh, clients who I work for is the um, leader of the Christian community in the Holy Land. Uh, if yeah. you think the Salvation Army have type good titles, um, the Patriarch's full title is His Most Godly Beatitude, Theophilus the Third Patriarch of the Church of Jerusalem. <laughs> so, uh, awesome. Just, you know, any captain, you know, major, brigadier, general, just what, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so uh, so pa- pa- Patriarch Theophilus, um, I work with um, on, on helping to raise awareness, actually, that the Christian community in the Holy Land is under threat. There's wow. a precipitous decline in the number of Christians living in Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. Wow, and uh, we we we're working hard um, uh, to help people to realise that and to do something about it. And there is no doubt that the country that has the most influence in the, yeah. for the for political life of Israel is is here in America. The United States has the most influence in Israel. Yeah, yeah. In, oh, I'm that's so interesting. I hope I can get into that a little bit more. Um, you you have had an amazing career. <laughs> You've gone from, uh, and I first came, heard of you um, probably in the late 90s when you were interacting with the Roots movement. And so I want to kind of just walk, walk people through your life. And I think it is really in, intriguing, particularly your professional career and what even led to this point where you're now serving the, I'm not going to get that name right, Archbishop <laughs> Theophilus. What a great name, by the way. I mean, you know, he has a whole book. He has two books written to him in the Bible. It works out very well. Well, actually, I mean, it, it, he is he is the 141st person to do his job, and the first was James, the brother of Jesus. Well, there you go. his lineage back. So, Patriarch Theophilus is, you know, he's a serious serious player, but he's also a, a great great man and very fun. But yes, I, I mean, I, it's, it's my career is only a career, um, and if you look backwards, yeah, no one would have planned this. No one would have constructed my career. It's just kind of uh, I hope divine accident after divine accident, and then the occasional mess up by me, basically. Amen. Well, I you know trust that God's 
convenient graces that work through all that. <laughs> so it's interesting. So I'll give you like a little bit of my sense of I actually never heard you speak with Roots. You did a lot of youth events in the United States with the Salvation Army. I, I had heard of you from a distance, maybe seen a few things you had written. Um, but I, I, got, I was shocked when I met you face-to-face because we were both presenting academic papers at a conference in Orlando. And I had known Russ Rook as this right. kind of um, cutting-edge person who was doing these new, new applications of ministry. And then... I was surprised to read this like really strong paper discussing like a modern American theologian. So I, I want to get to some of that. Now, to tell me, you grew up in the Salvation Army, right? You're a, are you a generational Salvationist? Yeah, my grandparents were officers. My parents were Salvationists. Yeah. How did you come to Jesus in the first place? Um, I guess like many kids, uh, you know, numerous encounters with Jesus at youth councils and summer camps and music schools. Right. Um, I liked music. I, I was okay at it. Yeah. And um, I really wanted to make a career in it. Uh, okay. I sense that God wanted me to do some kind of ministry. Yeah. And in the 1980s in the Salvation Army in the UK, you know, ministry, full-time ministry meant officership. Right, sure. I kind of knew was probably not my thing. Interesting. Uh, so I lived in denial of that. And then in, uh, in when I was 17 years old, I messed up all my auditions for music college. Okay. And um, You're a trombone player, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah. trombone player and conductor. And I messed up these auditions and I, um, I needed to find a, something to do for a year. Yeah. Um, I needed a year out. Because um, I was going to give it another go, and this guy called Phil Wall was starting the sort of territorial youth mission team, right? Um, for THQ, which is a bit of a new thing to trust lay people with this kind of stuff, right? And um, my DYO said, uh, my divisional youth officer said, look, give him a call and um, see. I think he's looking for some interns, right? And, um, I went to work for Phil. Um, and I discovered that God loved me, and uh, Phil had a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> that, that year out lasted for 18 years, and I worked for the Salvation Army for 18 years. I did go to music college, but I kind of did that on the side while I worked for the Salvation Army running summer missions programs. Okay. So it's interesting. Like um, you, Phil Wall is somebody who, like, I, I kind of put your two names. This is just kind of like the American view of what Roots was. Your guys' name, uh, two sides of the same coin in this sense. But you said he, he, he was the initiator of yeah. this min, min, mission team, as they called it, and Roots, or was, yeah. was that something you all did together? And yeah. Tell us about Roots, what, what, how that came about. And, and Roots is an interesting one. I can take very little credit for Roots. Okay. Phil can take more. But to be honest, um, without being sort of uh, unduly spiritual about it, you, yeah, sure. you have to blame Roots on the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, uh, we, we were fortunate. So this is 1990 onwards. Um, we were living at a time where the United Kingdom territory was incredibly, increasingly and incredibly open to the move of the spirit, to a sense that we wanted to be more open to the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of spiritual gifts and just kind of charismatic expressions of faith, I guess. But coupled with that was this real commitment to sort of what we saw as hardcore Salvation Army, spirituality with its sleeves rolled up, incarnational ministry, social justice. Yes, yes. And these two things came together. And we were fortunate to be working in the Salvation Army at a time where they were willing to let these unruly, untrained, uh, sometimes uncouth young adults actually try some stuff. And we tried some stuff, much of which didn't work, and a, a few bits really did work. 
Um, but there was a growing sense already in the early 90s that God was doing something. And um, Phil Wall went off to a conference, a place called Kethan Lee, which is a, a conference centre in Wales, middle right. of Wales, middle of nowhere, to be honest, but in the middle of Wales, that just upset any of your Welsh listeners. But anyway, uh, yeah, I have many, many Welsh listeners. <laughs> so anyway, he came back and he honestly said, guys, it's a great conference centre, we should do something there. Hmm. So we, we'd had... Uh, previously, we'd had this conference, um, which was an evangelism conference. I wasn't even at it because I was in South Africa proposing to my wife. Okay. And it'd been a very moving conference. It was at a time when uh, we were experiencing a lot of churches in the, experiencing were, in the UK were experiencing this thing which got titled the Toronto Blessing. Yeah. Which came to the United Kingdom, a kind of move of the Holy Spirit through Holy, Holy Trinity Brompton, yeah. largely. And that's the place where Alpha sort of came. Yeah, yeah, moved yeah. out through the Alpha Network. And we'd already had this conference where a, a, a prophet from one of the charismatic churches, Gerald Coates, had, had, had prophesied over the Salvation Army. The Holy Spirit had moved in a very powerful way in the meeting. Yes. He had anointed every member of the cabinet with oil, which wow. given some of our conversations, Andy, about sacraments and the Salvation Army was a, was a very powerful moment. Wow. Anyway, we were looking for a conference that sort of followed this up. Phil said, I've got this great venue. We should just do, we should do something in this Kevin Lee place. And we put this conference, we said, okay, we're going to do this conference called Roots about going back to the roots of the Salvation Army. And again, we booked some speakers. And and to be honest, that, that was it. And hmm. before we knew it, it was completely sold out, completely oversold. It, it is unfair to say, I mean, we couldn't fit everyone who wanted to come to the conference into the conference center. Wow. There are fair, there are fair, there are legends around that people ended up sleeping in beds with people they didn't know. <laughs> but people certainly ended up sleeping in combination with people they'd never met before. Wow. Um, and this, again, this, this move of the spirit kind of washed over the organization again. Wow. And uh, and to be honest, for probably Phil and myself and others, the next sort of 10 years was kind of cleaning up after that. Interesting. And, and trying to find some way of kind of, I guess, stewarding what God was doing, um, which was a huge amount of young people, but it wasn't exclusively right. young people. It was all kinds of people. Um, you know, we... I mean, one of the great fruits of it was a huge increase in the number of people offering for officership. Wow! And um, for a period, the very vast majority of people who were in off, who coming into officership, were identifying roots as a as their place of their calling or as a, a significant contribution to identifying their calling. Wow! So yeah, so a number of things. When was this? Was this mid nineties, late nineties that this was happening? Yeah. So the first, the first one. Be, uh, this is going to be um, twenty four years ago. Yeah. Okay, okay, so wow. 20, 20, 25, yeah. So that's interesting. So actually next year we start to get, yeah, we're sort of around the 25th anniversary of a lot of this stuff. Now what's interesting is this conference was not like, okay, so, and, and, and you know, the Salvation Army is different in every territory where, where we are. But um, yeah. if we were to say um, an employee was to come and make this event happen here, you would have still like this definite, this is an Army event, which means... We're going to have a particular program, and most likely the last person to speak will be the territorial commander, and there'll be a certain, like, they'll, I, I, or, or whoever it is, whoever the person in, in the position of power is. But that was not, I mean, this was true, maybe one of the main lay movements, I think, in the Salvation Army in the last 25 years. Most of the time, we have a top-down 
sure. perspective. Like, and, and, and yeah, so w- was that the case? Is that indeed what happened? Well, I, I'd be really careful about calling it a lay movement. Okay. Well, Phil and I were lay. Uh, you know, our boss, uh, John Dangerfield, who's the real hero in some ways. He was, okay. He was the evangelism secretary, and none of this would have happened without him. Thank you for um, clarifying. People like Chick and Margaret Yule were very important to it. Yeah. Successive territorial commanders were hugely supportive. Um, uh, uh, Alex Hughes yeah. uh, was one of the great heroes for me as a UK uh, territorial commander who just allowed this kind of innovation in all things mission. Um, but right through to people like Shortlift and lots of people who were very okay. supportive of Roots. And I think the great strength of Roots was not so much that it was a lay movement, but it was just it was just Salvationist movement. And okay. many yeah. people involved. When you came to Roots, you didn't really know who was a Salvationist and who was a soldier and who was an officer and who might not be from a Salvation Army background at all, but just came along because we had lots of speakers from, you know, who, who were well-known. We took it as an opportunity to expose the Salvation Army to some of the world's kind of what we thought were the best kind of Bible teachers yeah, yeah. and uh, social justice campaigners in the world. So, you, you know, your Jackie Pullingers and your Bill Hybels and your yeah. Jeff Lucases. And so we, we are very privileged, Gordon McDonald. I mean, huge. Like, so some people would just come along because they love the speakers. Others from other churches would occasionally come along again because they were intrigued by this mixture of, um, you know, high charge spirituality and openness and spirit on the one hand, but this really big commitment to kind of mission, incarnation, you know, going into the yeah. cities, yes. social justice issues. So, um, so it, one of the great things about it was it, it was it was a really equalizing experience. People wow. kind of didn't know who you were. You were just there as part of this thing that God was doing in the Salvation Army. Uh, but it would be wrong to call it lay because. We Thank were you. Utterly relying on the support of, of officers to make it happen, and there were many officers involved in the running of it. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and it's easy to. And, and I don't. I never heard that from you, or what I heard from Phil, or those those sort of, those sort of pieces. Um, so, but it's nice to hear you clarify what was going on. Now, there also in the UK was a um, a, a movement, a renewal movement called is it New Harvest as well. Uh, so spring harvest, spring harvest, spring harvest. Yeah, this was a kind of copy of spring harvest. Okay. When 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 we started doing evangelism with the Salvation Army um, in in 1990, um, again, again, to what you said there. I mean, it was very new, and to be honest, sometimes we struggled to fill our diaries because there weren't that many cores that wanted these nutty right. people, young adults, to turn up and do missions and you know evangelistic events. And, and to so, my American audience, a diary is a calendar. A calendar. a calendar. Just wanted to make. He's not yeah, like a dear diary, true. right? <laughs> For a few years, we ended up sort of working with other churches and other projects, um, partly because you know they wanted us maybe more than you know Salvation Army Corps and Division did. Um, but anyway, um, and as part of that, we became part of a project called Spring Harvest, which is a project that's been going for over thirty years in the United Kingdom. Um, was again a source of great renewal. Um, and just a, a Christian convention. Well, I was the chair of Spring Harvest for a period. I think about thirty-five thousand people came to Spring Harvest during during that time. Wow! Uh, every year, so um, it was a big event. Um, yeah. In multiple venues over multiple weeks. Yeah. Um, and so we were very influenced by that, and in some ways, 
what we took was that the program of Spring Harvest, which was tended to be kind of Bible study in the morning and lots of practical seminars through the day and then right. big motivational celebration and uh, teaching and response and, sure. and ministry and, and then art stuff in the evening. And we basically took that. We stole that. And one of my favorite quotes is Igor Stravinsky, who says that talent borrows, but genius steals. And, and Amen. Like, our only genius in Bruce was stealing Spring Harvest and just kind of putting in a sort of Salvation Army. I wouldn't say uniform, but maybe a Salvation Army parachute. Right, right. Interesting. So did this then lead you to um, like these type of things that you were doing in, in the Salvation Army as a um, as an, in a staff member, intern? Eventually you became the Territorial Youth Secretary and as a non-officer, that's a unique thing. Did that follow on the heels well, of Roots? Or? So actually, technically, I didn't become the Territorial Youth Oh, okay. I became the Director of Youth Ministry. Uh, so I did, that's the one that probably didn't cross, not being an officer, I didn't cross that line. Okay, there you um, go. So yes, I did. We, we During my time, we basically, um, we, we, um, that part of what happened in Roots was a, we, we sometimes called Roots a kind of a youth movement with a really good parent-sitting program. <laughs> a lot of the really exciting stuff was happening with young people who were coming to faith, who right. were going on and planting. We ran these uh, church plants called Neos in, in really deprived communities. And these kids would, you know, choose to go to university in one of those communities so they could be part of a new Salvation Army plant there. And, all kinds of things were going on that, with young people, which is very powerful. Um, and we got the sense that there was, you know, Salvation Army needs to respond to this. And, you know, instead of having a strategy, which was essentially about trying to keep Salvation Army young people in the Salvation Army by entertaining them with various bits of teaching, discipleship program. Yeah. Um, we needed to actually empower these young people to be the Salvation Army. Yes. So that we wanted to say, look, you're not, you're not just there, you know, um, uh, as young people within our movement, you are our movement. And so the sooner as we can turn you into missionaries to reach your own generation, the better. Yeah. And so we created this thing called A Love for Salvation Army for a New Generation, which is an attempt to sort of slightly rebrand it and give them a kind of space and a fresh expression of their own. And territorially, we split, split Salvation Army youth work and children's ministry. Okay. So the Territory Youth Secretary carried on looking after children. Oh, okay. Interesting. And I looked after sort of my team looked after thirteen and above, and yeah, and uh, some remarkable again, very privileged to have been there at a time like that. It was called a love. I see. I've a said love. it a love all this time. Yeah. yeah. It, it, what was the idea behind that the name? It was the idea was from our branding agents, uh, which I still like to this day. It was a bit weird, but it was actually quite good because every every time you said I, I'm I'm part of a love, this com I, 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 this conversation would happen, and people didn't know what it was. So I allowed you to tell the story, and I mean, Andy, you will know this as a theologian. The Bible uses lots of different words for love, right? Um, but um, and the idea was in our world, the word for love has been somewhat cheapened. You yes. Know, you say, I love Ben and Jerry's ice cream or right, right. New West new album or I love this pair of sneakers or whatever. And it's like, well, that's not really love. Yeah. And we were using the fact that Jesus particularly uses that agape, agape yeah. word for yeah. love as a kind of different, distinct kind of love. Yeah. And we wanted the Salvation Army young people to be an expression of a kind of agape love for their generation. So. We played around with that, and it, it was good in some ways because every time someone expressed confusion, we got to tell the story about what love's really all about. So Amen. It was a bit, yeah. Anyway, who knows? But it was uh, it, again privileged to be. Now, was it after that then that you'd made a shift to um, pursue a PhD in theology? Or how, how'd that come about? Uh, sort of through that time, I um, 
again, when, 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 in the early days of, of the mission team, when, when we were, when we were struggling to find things to do within the Salvation Army, we, right. we used to go to conferences and we used to go every year to the National Evangelists Conference in the United, in the United Kingdom, which is for very broad, everyone from, you know, these kind of nutty, mad kind of youth evangelists through to guys who are kind of on the streets, you know, with yeah. a, you know, a bull horn and, you know, very traditional old school proclamation evangelism. And uh, one year, the guest speaker was a gentleman by the name of uh, Bishop Leslie Newbigan. Oh, yeah, a great, sure. Um, missiologist. And actually, my boss, Phil, um, went to pick him up. Leslie was in his eight, uh, late 70s at this time, maybe, maybe even 80. No, late 70s, late 70s. And Phil picked him up from the station because he was wow. blind. Um, wow. And as he took him to the conference, because he was speaking at the conference, he said to him, well, how do you, you know, how do you prepare your sermons and how do you keep reading and all the stuff you're doing? And he said, I, just, I have an army of readers who turn up to, to read to me. Wow. So through most of my university years, I would go, yeah, a couple of times a month, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes once a week, depending. And I would sit in his, he lived in a sort of retirement oh goodness. Home, uh, for reformed uh, church ministers. Wow. And I would sit on this, I would sit in his bedroom on this uh, chair made of wicker, the, the uh, most uncomfortable chair in the world, <laughs> the, um, pattern of which is, is still actually impressed upon my buttocks. And, <laughs> and I would sit there and I would read to him the yeah. stuff that he needed oh my reading, goodness. whatever he was writing and and he was a truly remarkable man. Halfway through the reading, he, he would go and make a cup of tea, and then he would come, and he was a real gentleman, a real servant. So he insisted on pouring the tea, but of course, he's, he's half blind, so the tea's mostly in your lap. Oh, my goodness, um, wow. And uh, then you read the rest. And then as I walked back to the station, um, very near, actually, to the Salvation Army Training College, as I walked back to the station to catch the train home or back to college afterwards, I would always find myself just asking the question, you know, who was I with then? Was it, was it Leslie or Jesus? And, wow. and the answer was always yes. Um, he was just the most remarkable man. So we became friends. And um, he was very keen that I do some theological study. And I was interested as well, because I've been working for the Salvation Army by this point um, uh, for probably three or four years, uh, five years, five or six years maybe. And um, and I have a music degree, which you know the Salvation Army is quite appropriate, but it's not it's not it's not you know it's not a great qualification for theological kind of teaching. <laughs> I know. And he was very keen that I study with a gentleman called Colin Gunton, who was a professor. Oh yeah. In, in London, and um, so I um, did. He help you get in with him? Did, did... Well, yeah. So he was talking me into this, and uh, and I said, look, they're never going to take me. I've only got a music degree. I haven't got a theology degree or anything. And then uh, one year, just after Christmas in January, I got a call from a lady who was kind of this kind of voluntary volunteer secretary yeah. to tell me that he died very suddenly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I knew he'd been ill before Christmas. He was an incredibly under, very British, very, very humble. Um, and I'd been to see him in December and I said, Leslie, I hear you've been in hospital. And it was, he said, oh, no, don't worry. Nothing really. Just a kind of minor thing, you know. But it obviously was more major, and then in January he died of heart attack. And um, and his this lady, his secretary, phoned to tell me, and she said, "What do you want me to do with this letter?" I said, "What what letter?" And she said, "I've got this letter that I typed oh for him goodness. last week, asking Colin Gunter to take you at King's College London." Oh my goodness! Um, and at that point, I still now I've got goosebumps again. Um, Praise the Lord! I mean, this is an amazing thing. You big and did that in in the in the last weeks of his life. Then I so I went and studied with Colin, and then. Um, 
did a master's with Colin, and at the end of the master's, I said, I'd, I'd really like to do my PhD with you because all I've learned is just how much I don't know. Yeah. Uh, to which he said, I feel exactly the same, which was kind of discouraging. <laughs> I know how much you don't know. The yeah. 60s is one of the greatest theologians of their generation. And sadly, Colin died. On his way. I was going to say, actually, I thought you were talking about Colin. Yeah. When you said, he, well, after I, I got mixed up in the timeline there. I thought you were saying you weren't going to get your study with Colin Gutton because yeah. he had died. I knew he had died no, Okay, in yeah. a similar yeah. time. I started my master's with Colin, started my PhD with Colin, then Colin passed away very suddenly as well. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so then I, fi- I finished my PhD in, um, my, my, then my, my next tutor moved to St. Andrews, so I, I finished my PhD in St. Andrews. Okay. And, and you did your um, dissertation, uh, is it on Robert Jensen? Yeah, yeah. So an American, uh, again, passed away two years ago. Yeah. Uh, Jensen was a... Uh, um, great, great theologian, uh, Lutheran theologian at Princeton, and um, a remarkable man, endlessly sort of entertaining and curious. Yeah, sure. A profound theologian, and particularly interested in the relationship between theology and culture, and how um, how the church uses culture to make Jesus present in the world. You know, right. Through art, through wow. music, through architecture, through drama, through teaching through politics through all kinds of ways we use different cultural forms to try and make jesus present in the world and that's what my phd looks at so it's interesting a lot of times salvationists when they um go to um do uh academic research will do it on the salvation army so to speak so it's great you're able to kind of break away (laughs) break away from that did you find um robert jensen's work speaking to the salvation army that's that was my first context for hearing you was uh, the paper you had then uh, completed on, um, you know, I had some great metaphors in it with uh, rhythm and rhyme and, and these sort of, I think that's the title of your book too. Um, yeah. But what was, um, what do you, what do you apply from Robert Jensen to the Army's context? Well, it was really helpful for me because it was at the time that we were doing a lot. So mm-hmm. okay. we were looking to find a way of helping the Salvation Army sort of embed itself within youth culture. Mm-hmm. So someone who really believed that culture wasn't just a, way which we translate God stuff to the world, but was actually a way in which God can become present in the world. Amen. It was really, really powerful. Um, and so, you know, for young people, um, you know, youth culture is everything. So that idea of, you know, the power of music, the power of fashion, the power of design, you know, whether it's you're a skater kid or you're a goth, you know, your culture is part of who you are and how you express that reality in the world and how mm-hmm. you understand the world and what you think the world is. Right. And so if the Salvation Army was going to reach into youth culture, it was really important that we realized that, you know, culture is important, but also culture can be incredibly powerful. Yeah, and yeah. In the same way that the Salvation Army allowed the Holy Spirit to invade culture, whether it was the beer-drinking songs of the pubs in the 19th right, century, right. which we turned into worship songs, or yeah. whether it was the love of the British military and the Tommy, or British Tommy around the world fighting for king and country, or right. you know, we took lots of cultural forms and, and found a way of helping God and Jesus to show up in those cultures. Yes. And some of them were quite surprised. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, it was great because that's in kind of what we were trying to do with the Salvation Army and young people. And so to think deeply about that theologically was really, really helpful. Yeah. And again, to, once again, all credit goes to the many territorial commanders, evangelists, secretaries, um, program uh, secretaries that kind of I worked with, all of whom were really encouraging. Um, 
about about theological study. When I started, uh, there was one again, probably one of the great heroes of my, you know, my experience of working with the Salvation Army would have been slightly more in that old school type. And I remember he came into my office and he looked at the books on my when I was doing my masters. He looked at the books on my um, bookshelf and he said, "Ah, oh, they'll make an atheist of you yet." <laughs> there was a time. Yeah, I, sure thought too deeply about these things you wouldn't lose your faith yeah um, having said that that guy paid for my masters and so he really was very supportive yeah and the truth is or the salvation he got the salvation army to pay for my master um and there was an openness to say and i'm so people like yourself and others i'm i'm so encouraged that i hardly a day goes by when you don't see a salvation army officer around the world on facebook say i've just got my masters or i've just got yeah. my doctorate and that can only help the Salvation Army to to be both a deeper, but also a, a kind of a, a more a more high reaching organization. Right. I'll, t- I'll talk about the higher education piece in a second, but I want to go back to the idea of making Jesus present in our particular context, like as he's available now. I don't know if you've heard. It. There's a, a scholar that I've come across lately named uh, Matthew Bates, and um, he has re- he wrote wrote a book, uh, and he has a, a kind of more popular version. It's come out now called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And so he's like taking kind of the Reformation idea of um, justific- justification by grace by faith. Um, and he's tra- he, he, he's a New Testament scholar, and he suggests that the word that was often used for faith, pistis, you know, which is very complicated, rather it's objective or subjective. Yeah. and um, But he says that pistis should be translated allegiance. And in and, and, he, he, he takes that through a variety of historical pieces in the New Testament. But here, here's why that connects to the idea is that he then suggests, and it, it helped me see it, and I maybe read this other places, but get the idea that if we are giving our allegiance to Jesus, it is in part because of where he is now, like his location, his enthronement. Like oftentimes we look at the, the, the cross as a climax of the gospel, and certainly there, but it's the totality of Jesus's uh you know, life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, in yeah. this sense, which allows thus Jesus to be in this high priestly position and then available to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, that that idea it, it has allowed me to think of Jesus's actual presence in ministry in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and for me, I mean, one of the things for Jensen was that he is a Lutheran theologian and he's a Lutheran theologian who's been part of a kind of radical renewal of Lutheran theology in the 20th century. And a big part of their thing is precisely that um, the Protestant church has sold Luther down the river. Right. They honestly believed there was nothing we could do to be saved, that we didn't deserve it, that it was entirely about grace. And our traditions have continually actually not being able to work with that kind of radical idea mm-hmm. of salvation as God's gift. And we've suddenly put things in the way where, whether it's just by putting my hand up or going to the front or by putting on that uniform or... Oh, there you go. For the Lord, suddenly we start earning right. our salvation. And that's very... It feels to me that's always a tension in the Salvation Army. Right. By the pathway of duty flows the river of God's strength. Right, right, right. Um, and the duty becomes, I'm, I'm aware of it myself. Um, I've got two kids, 17 and 15, or just about to turn 15. And, you know, they're going through that time where they're having to consider whether they take faith seriously for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I just realized when I was a kid, so much was bound up in a duty to be there. Right. You know, those decisions were kind of taken for me. And then 
thank the Lord, I did have a real experience of God. Um, and that's why I'm a Christian today. And, and I continue to have real experiences of God. But <laughs> so much of yeah. my life was brought up in fact that I went to church because I happened to be on duty because the band was playing. Right, um, right. So this, this sense of this, this kind of uh, this tension within our organization about saying, but do we really believe that we're only saved just by justification of faith and just by God's yes. radical grace and not by anything we've ever done or deserved? You know, I just had uh, Ken Collins, Dr. Ken Collins on the podcast, and he, um, he, he's a Wesley scholar. And he suggested one of the main problems uh, in Wesley scholarship is this emphasis on the cooperative aspect of salvation and not on the, and, and, and that misses Wesley's huge emphasis on from Luther on free grace that this is a, this is something this is God's work we work because God works it's like he kept on emphasizing that I mean that that has if we're going to be uh truly salvationist and, and truly in this sense Wesleyan uh yeah. that has to be and in refer I mean I keep you can keep going back like each layer like a truly reformational truly Protestant truly early church uh that's got to be a part of it This episode of Captain's Corner is brought to you by an anonymous donor who loves the ministry of the Salvation Army and RegisterToRing.com. RegisterToRing is the simple way to sign up to ring bells at the Salvation Army. Ringing bells is a cherished holiday tradition and money raised goes directly to help people in need in your community. To volunteer to ring in your community this holiday season, go to RegisterToRing.com to sign up today. You can sign up as an individual or a group. Just go to RegisterToRing.com. And let me just add that in Tampa, this has been a blessing to have Register to Ring in place. We've had a great expansion of our volunteer efforts because of Register to Ring. So check that out today. And our thanks to these sponsors for their help in producing Captain's Corner. Okay, so I, in, in your little history, you had you didn't go to the academy. You didn't like jump in and become a professor. Instead, you, you started an organization that was called Church Street. And now I don't know how that fits in with this uh, work you're doing with the Archbishop of um jerusalem but yeah fill in those blanks for me um, so what happened with, what happened with the love was we saw for a few years a radical incline in the number of young people engaging with the salvation army in the united kingdom so that was hugely encouraging right uh, but i think for those of us again we were thinking that you know the salvation army is always a missionary movement um we're always about moving out to reach people not just trying to drag people in or grow people up within the movement right um there was something going on in the UK at the time, which was a major reformation of the way in which political kind of reorganization by the way in which our government was doing schools. Right. Where increasingly the government was saying, uh, rather than uh, uh, rather than run schools through local government, uh, we would be more interested in uh, running, having, you know, funding essentially other organizations, charities to run uh, state funded schools. Right. Um, over a third of our schools were already run by the Roman Catholic Church and mainly the Church of England. So right. there's a huge tradition of uh, church schools in the UK. In fact, we only have mass public education in the UK because of the churches and because of the Sunday school movement. Right, so right. We started wow. mass education in the UK. Um, so um, I started to think, look, there's a real opportunity here. A number of organizations moving into this space. And so... I was really keen that we explore that with the Salvation Army. At the time, the Salvation Army had half a million children going to our schools around the world. And I kind of thought, why not do that in the UK? If they're looking for organizations, why don't we put our hands up? Yeah. And uh, the Salvation Army was responsive to that. And we explored that a lot. Um, and then for various reasons, it just didn't 
feel like the organization could could take that move right uh but by then i'd kind of gone past the tipping point i think vocation was you know um i don't know i mean i guess at the time i was you know you convinced that this is what the law calling you to as you get older you get very aware um you become more self-aware yeah um, and I'm, I'm essentially i'm a i'm a bit of a theologian i'm a bit of an evangelist i'm a bit of a a, a teacher and speaker, yep. a bit of a writer, communicator, but I'm a lot of a social entrepreneur. If you look, if you look throughout my whole life, the, sure. the interest for me is always what's the new thing that we can do. Right. And so I get very attached to new things and I, it's very difficult to haul me back from it. Yeah. And so um, we decided, well, we weren't going to be able to do this within the Salvation Army um, and maybe we could try and do this outside the Salvation Right. Um, hmm. And for me, there was something also quite important, which was I, by this point, you know, I've been working with the Salvation Army for 18 years. I'd left school and I've essentially spent 18 years working with the Salvation Army. Yeah. Um, you know, most of that time as a professional Christian being paid to follow Jesus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd never just had to do it. I never had to be like a normal Salvationist. Right. Sure. You know, we, I've been telling Salvation, Salvation Army soldiers for two decades. We're all in full-time ministry. Which right, is, right. You know, it's a lot easier to know that you're in full-time ministry when you're being paid to be in full-time ministry. Right. It's hard to work out a full-time ministry if, you know, that's your job in the bank or yeah, sure. you're in the hospital or the street sweeper or whatever you do. And so I also felt convicted to say that actually if my salvation isn't as serious for me, I, and I wrote to the territorial commander and said, I I think I need to be, you know, I need to have be a, in full-time ministry as a salvationist in a way that most salvationists are right. or should be in full-time ministry. So we took this and uh, Phil Needham, one of my sort of heroes and mentors uses a brilliant um, line in Community and Mission, which said that the genius of William Booth was that he put the chapel onto the street right. and um, took the kind of Wesleyan chapel idea and made it into a kind of public entity and placed it in the middle of public life. And so we created this thing called Chapel Street and we, over a period of few years, we created what in America would be charter schools, yeah. seven charter schools. Um, working with local churches in local communities around the UK, largely in areas of significant deprivation. And it was a, it was a great experience. It was incredibly hard. I mean, wow. Um, and we had as many failures as we had successes. Um, and so it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a big kind of growing up experience. Mm-hmm. And it basically took me into politics. Wow. And it drew me into that, that world because most of your life was spent negotiating with uh, government officials, whether it be local government officials or politicians. And the chair of my charity uh, was a lady uh, who is now goes by the title. She has a great title as well, the Reverend Baroness Sherlock of Stone. Wow. So Maeve, um, Reverend was, Baroness. Uh, been a, a politician who'd come to faith okay. um, in the most dramatic way, become the chair of my charity, um, and then uh, was appointed to the House of Lords. Um, uh, which is our second chamber in Westminster in Parliament. Yeah. And so I, I'd started sort of doing some work with her there. And so, yeah, that led to... The Did Chapel Street phase out? The Chapel... Uh, Chapel Street, no, carried on. And, okay. Um, uh, yeah, under, and I moved on from Chapel Street. In, in 20, um, 2014, um, uh, well, I, I was doing some work in the House of Lords and continuing to run Chapel Street. Okay. Uh, in 2014, uh, my boss in the House of Lords, Baroness Sherlock Maeve, um, took me to a meeting with the leader of the Labour Party, his chief of staff, a guy called Tim Lipsy, 
and uh, it was about six months before our general election. And I ended up working uh, for the leader of the Labour Party and his team for six okay. months. Is this before? I don't. I don't know much about British politics. Is this before Jeremy Corbyn took over? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Directly, of course. So we lost the election in 2015. Okay. And Ed Miliband resigned, and Jeremy was the next leader. Okay. So, um, so that was very interesting. I mean, seeing an election campaign very close up was very interesting. And after that, myself and Tim Livesey, who's Ed's chief of staff, said, "Look, we are increasingly worried about." The fact that um, political leaders in the UK are becoming more religiously illiterate. They don't really understand faith. Uh, If they understand their own faith, if they have a faith tradition, they don't usually understand anyone else's. And many don't have any faith tradition. They're very secular. And likewise, um, faith leaders and church leaders, they kind of know what they want to change in politics and what they want to be different about their societies in which they live. But they don't always know how to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the things they do make it less likely that they'll see change in the area they'd like to see change. So we started a thing called the Good Faith Partnership, which was an attempt to try and work between faith and politics, mainly because, you know, I was moving away from Chapel Street and right. we lost the election, so we all needed jobs. <laughs> that's what I've been doing since 2015. Oh, just lost you. Sorry, I got you back. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, 20, since, since 2016. So that was large, 2015, so largely, since 2015, I was largely working on response to the refugee crisis. Wow. Um, and so working between government, uh, churches, faith communities on that issue. Um, and then over the, and, and some other issues as well. Um, and then over the last few, last year, m- much more work on this issue of helping Christians in the Holy Land. Wow. It, you know, the global, global persecution of Christians. Um, I mean, one, one thing about our government, I'm glad that we've, in the United States, they've, I don't know if you've interacted, I forget the guy's name, somewhere from like Oklahoma or like that, or Kansas, Sam Brownback. That's a, yeah. That's Sam Brownback yeah. yeah, so I'm glad that we have somebody in that role. Um, I don't really want to be like a, a Republican or Democrat issue at some point. Have you worked with him as well? Yes, I work, we work with Sam a lot. Um, so Sam is the ambassador at large for religious freedom in the State Department. Um, he's a very good man. He has a very, very good team. Um, and uh, you're right. I mean, uh, there's there's lots can be said about politics in America and in the United Kingdom. Right? <laughs> yes, bless us. Um, <laughs> there's lots of places we don't want to go. Uh, but uh, America has really been on the front foot of raising this issue of religious freedom. 83% of people in the world yeah. live in contexts where there is a significant or severe restriction of their freedom of belief wow. or freedom of kind of religious practice. So, and that number's getting worse every year. So wow. you kind of think, well, surely it's all getting better and actually the world's becoming a place where faith is easier than the rest and it's actually getting worse. And America's been fantastic. Sam Brownback has been, you know, a key part of that. Um, but and there's various other things in the US that have been very successful and we are actually trying to help some of those things and use some of those models in the UK and with other governments around the world. Wow. It is amazing, Russ, to... I'm just checking out my time here. It's amazing to see where God has led you um, yeah. through the years. So God has taken you on a wild journey from the yeah. 17-year-old intern, getting on the cutting-edge movement, um, kind of leading initiatives through the UK territory to amazing interaction with Leslie Newbigin and um, Colin Gutton and um, academic experiences that have enriched your, your life. And then this cha- Chapel Street and now up being working in politics. Um so you and I have also had opportunities to think about an issue that um, 
we have concerns about with the army, and that's related to our historical non-observance of sacraments. And we connected uh, a few years ago after I presented a paper. It was like kind of the first internal published call for reintroduction of the sacraments, the traditional Protestant sacraments in the Salvation Army. Um, and I'm just curious, like, how you've approached this, uh, the, the issue of sacraments and the army, and how you think about that, and what, it, it's always, it's hard to think, okay, we can look historically as to where we are, um, but then pointing to the future, that's a, another concern. So how do you think about that with the sacraments? So, so my way in, I mean, one of the things we did, um, just to give it a bit of context, yeah. Um, when I was at music college, um, uh, <laughs> my boss, Phil Wall, needed a new house. His rental agreement was coming to an end. And so he spoke to territorial headquarters and said, have you got any you know, spare houses that I could rent for myself and my wife? And they said, we've got this one house in a place called Rains Park in southwest London near Wimbledon where they play the tennis. Right. And uh, uh, but you, So you can have the house, but it comes with a youth group. Okay. The officer who was in the house was a THQ officer, but he was looking after this local youth group in Wimbledon. Okay. And uh, this local youth group was not just a youth group, but it had found an unused Salvation Army building in Rains Park right. and was turning it into a kind of youth outreach. It was a time when we were all running non-alcoholic cocktail bars for some reason. That was the kind of, <laughs> was the kind of modus operandi of youth mission in the Salvation Army. And so they were turning this place into a non-alcoholic cocktail bar to reach young people. And so he moved into the house and uh, soon after, well, before he moved in, he said, look, we're moving in this direction. He said to myself and my then girlfriend, our wife, Charlotte, um, look, we were both needing places because we were students and it was coming to the end of the year and we needed somewhere new to rent. So we basically all ended up moving into the neighborhood together and that became a church. Okay. And, uh, uh, it was, I mean, in some ways it was very Salvation Army. Um, it was you know, a mixture of people, some from the Salvation Army background, but others who had just been attracted to this new incarnational project that was going on in the community. And so fairly early on in the life of the church, a bit like the Salvation Army, had an issue of sacraments, obviously came up with the Salvation Army, you know, with lots of people from different church backgrounds coming together in the late 19th century to form the Salvation Army. Sure. In the United Kingdom, we weren't just kind of you know reformed alcoholics. That you know, right, there right. were lots of people who were kind of disillusioned with their churches and wanted to be part of this new expression of like rail kind of mission. Yeah. So we had a similar thing, and nothing is grand. And the question obviously came was that obviously people come to this church have slight different experiences of some of them have gone to churches where there's been um, uh, baptism or you know Lord's uh, Supper, communion, mm-hmm. Lord's Supper, whatever. Um, and so I, I was tasked, because I guess I, even then I was not as the person who might be likely to go away and do write a, a slightly more academic paper. So it wasn't very academic, I can assure you. This, this task was going away to write sort of what, what can we do about this right. as a core. Um, and I actually, the, the person who helped me mostly, Chip Hill, and the advice he gave me, which was utterly brilliant, um, he gave me lots of advice, but one was, you really want to be careful because you don't want Rains Park to become known as, oh, they're the Salvation Army that does communion and baptism. Right. Because you're about something much bigger than that. And Mm. it would make it too easy for uh, people who don't like this new stuff to write you off Mm. if you just become very loud and proud about the sacraments. Um, And you need to stick to what you're really about, which is reaching people and all the rest. So that was all true. But at the same time, there was an acknowledgement that 
for some people these things were going to be important. And right. so what I found fascinating was reading back into the history, because of course, you know, our founders had been sacramental. Mm-hmm. They received communion right. throughout his life. And obviously our decision as an organization to, to almost to, to put it on hold, to use William Booth's language, sure, yeah. was one that wasn't made for a theological reason, but was, was made for um, a missional reason mm-hmm. originally. And, and because it was going to be confusing for all these people from different backgrounds and child in, infant baptism have recently become a very controversial issue. And should you do that and all the rest? And so I thought it was interesting because I just grown up thinking, well, we just don't believe in this kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, but we're non-sacramental. Did believe in this stuff, yeah, but yeah. put it on hold because it, it was conflicting with the mission of, and the sort of mobilization of the organization was fascinating to me. And then to read someone like William Booth, who does use the phrase in, in his famous article in The War Cry, where he explains that he's putting this on hold because we're not a church and we're a mission movement, so we don't need to do the sacraments, but also that no salvation should be withheld from the sacraments. Right, this interesting. This was kind of revelation to me. Yeah. Um, 1883 article, New Year's Day article. Um, if you, Amy wants to look it up, in, in, in that article he says, um, perhaps there'll be a time we'll have more light on the subject like it look i mean and, and if anybody i talked to roger green about this and it'll come out in the book i'm working on um never in william booth's writing or life or administration do we have him say you know i'm not quite sure about this <laughs> i mean this is the autocratic person who had the way but he's saying you know perhaps a future generation will will have more light yeah, and I think likewise, what he seems to be saying is, if you know, if this thing becomes a church at some point, and obviously, you know, I, I'm a great, you know, Phil Needham is another great hero of mine, and yeah. uh, community and mission to me is a is a definitive or a defining document for the salvation. Option, Absolutely, so in terms of saying, you know, this funny, weird-looking movement, which maybe in some ways is more of an order than a denomination, but you know, no one's really arguing now that. You know, we would all talk, to, most of us, in fact, probably all of us talk, the Salvation Army is our church. Right, our right. Church. So anyway, so we, we found ways of saying, look, we, we don't want to do this in such a way that causes real offense to people within our tradition. Um, so we do want to practice the, the love feast. And, and there seems to be enough in Salvation Army history to say that the practice of a meal whereby we remember the death and resurrection of our Lord is you know, wholly appropriate. We yeah. should do that upon time. You know, not going to do it every week at a certain time and use a certain ritual, but we are going to be creative and are going to have times where we physically, you know, take, you know, uh, take on some kind of active remembrance. Um, and then we, we did, we, when people became Christians, we offered them baptism, but we did that through the local Baptist church down the road. So okay. We said, look, you can have baptism there and we'll come along and we'll bring the flag and we'll be part of the celebration and we'll, you know, yeah. and, and the testimonies and all the rest. But again, we last thing we want to do is, you know, what we're doing here in Brains Park is really important. And the last thing we want to do is, 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 is make that vulnerable by the fact that we're being a bit too brash and arrogant about going ahead and right. allowing people to participate in the sacraments. So that was my way in. I think the other thing I would say, which I think is the issue has became more for me as I, as I went, as particularly because so much of my life at that time was youth ministry news. And I remember having this conversation with um, the Territorial Leaders Conference here in Atlanta in not one of my best pitched 
uh, <laughs> I've ever given, where I, to this day, I'm sorry, I know that I caused offence. Uh, <laughs> I've heard about this meeting. <laughs> I, was, I was young. I didn't necessarily disagree with anything I said, but it was that kind of my tone and my pitch and my just general youthful exuberance definitely crossed the line into a kind of... Um, uh, arrogance, which I would I would would want to disown and repent. <laughs> but one thing I would stand by was my comment is that it doesn't, you know, for, for going back to what we said about youth culture, um, we live in a context where, a, you know, a sort of it feels to me that the Salvation Army at, at its best is a really sacramental organisation. So what does sacrament mean? Sacrament is a belief where we believe again that Jesus can make Himself present. In mm-hmm. the world, in really ordinary ways, yes, and he can use really ordinary things not only to point towards him, but so that people can experience him. Right, and right. It feels to me that the Salvation Army, at its best, is a massively sacramental organisation. Amen. We believe that Jesus can make Himself present in all kinds of ways, and many of them are physical. Amen. You know, Amen. It's, it's the soup handed to a homeless person, or the blanket they wrap around them. It's that. Cornet solo from someone in the band, that yeah. song that someone sings, it's that embrace, it's that uniform we put on. We we believe it's that experience of God as I kneel at a mercy seat. That yes. God uses all kinds of physical things yes. to make himself present in our life. And so for me, I guess I got to the point where we're in a generation where that physical experience is possibly more important than ever to say right, to a young right. person that God is just a thought that you can have in your head and there's no physical experience. Right. Because their whole life is about searching after a physical experience and mm-hmm. understanding the place of them in the world, their body, their sexuality, their physicality, their their fitness, the adventure, you know, all those yeah, things. Yeah. The physical world is something to be embraced and right. enjoyed. Um, you know, as, as C.S. Lewis says, God loves matter, he made it. Amen. You know, and so there's something about God being in material things. Uh, that, that young people want to experience. So for me, that was the problem. I increasingly found it that actually this deny people this. And what's more, it doesn't make sense because the Salvation Army does believe that God shows up in the real world right, in real right. ways, and some of them are material. And so why would I then say that this one beautiful, beautiful image that Jesus left us with, right, right, um, you know, where I can actually taste it, right drink something of his forgiveness into my life right right experience the bread of life yes why would i want anyone as william booth says to withhold from that and i think i just say one more thing yeah yeah yeah. i'll follow up this is where i have a lot to leslie newbigan um leslie newbigan wrote a brilliant book on the church which is one of his least read books called the household of god okay there was an attempt to bring together kind of um kind of different ecclesiologies from the kind of kind of Catholic Anglican through to the Pentecostal. And at one point he talks about the disciples in the Last Supper. And I I mean, there's some license in this, but he, his theory is that Jesus, when he's at the Last Supper, is thinking, this isn't working. I've mm-hmm. kind of blown it because I'm not going to be around much longer. And I've got these, these guys who've been following me and clearly they don't get it. Judas is about to betray me, Peter's about to deny me they don't seem to have an understanding of what I'm about to go through and the importance of it Um, and uh, and, and, you know I've spent three years with them my time's nearly up and maybe it's it's all maybe it's it's over and Leslie writes this line there's only certain texts I know off my heart I know this line off my heart because it means so much to me he says 
With the disciples' faith falling all around, Jesus staked it all on one last act. Wow. He took bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Wow. Poured wine and said, this is my blood poured out for you. Yeah. And this idea that Jesus says, look, if if you don't understand anything about right, it, right, right, understand right. this and use as the act of breaking bread and right. pouring wine. And so for me, that sense of there's something so defining about this particular act. Yeah. I'm not sure why I would want it to be, you know. And so I, I'm an interesting. My background spiritually is interesting. I, yeah. I grew up in the Salvation Army, as I said. I, yep. My grandparents were officers. I also went to a cathedral school, so uh, in Portsmouth. So um, the life of my school was was very much shaped by the life of the cathedral. Mm, and so I, I, I've always described myself as kind of a Salvationist and an Anglican. Yeah. And I've sometimes said it kind of like sometimes theologically and by disposition, I feel like I'm more of an Anglican, but due to God's sick sense of humor, I'm in the salvation. <laughs> and now, to be honest, uh, my life straddles both. So I'm very still involved in the call that we planted in Rains Park. Yeah, I know Nick and Carrie. Uh, um, you're and awesome. Most days when I'm in Westminster, I go along to uh, St. Martin in the Field, which is a very famous yeah. Anglican church on Trafalgar Square. And I, yeah. I enjoy morning prayer and um, I try and get along to communion every so often when I've got time at lunchtime. And I, I treasure both those traditions. Um, I had a similar experience. Let me jump in there like a, uh, uh, or not, uh, that connects with, with what you're saying. I, I got to be, I mean, I was an ardent salvationist defender and I went to Asbury University and various other salvationists there. But um, I, I have to admit, almost grew up thinking of the sacraments as just like another distinction between denominations. Certainly there's other movements that do the same thing. I didn't realize that we really are alone in this. Um, and I, I almost don't count the Quakers and the Society of Friends. Um, yeah. You don't even have to believe in a personal God to be a minister in the Society of Friends anymore. So uh, I, I was pretty good rhetorically at defending the Army's position. Like I, I could, And I would have a mic drop moment with saying my life must be Christ's broken bread. And I remember yeah. I was talking with a friend and uh, at, and I feel like I won the argument in this case. Like if anybody was voting, I would have been selected as the winner of the argument. But then he just looked at me and said, I don't know, Andy, it's just really good to take communion. And it was like this moment of like, there's something, and, and, and I didn't really have a an argument against that. I just kind of like left it. And I think what happens is this real opportunity to engage in a tangible expression of God's grace is something that we might we, we might miss. Grant Sander Cook Brown says something interesting. He says in his book, 21 Questions for a 21st Century Army, he says, we can use all kinds of things in the Sabbath Army. We can, uh, in worship, we can have crosses, nails, we can do anything we want in the worship service. The, the, the one thing we can't do is the most sacred symbols within yeah. 20 centuries of the christian church um and i think that that's that's a problem now i want to i want to ask you something too when you're talking about the real presence of christ um you know often i alluded to it just a second ago that we the kind of almost every published article <laughs> david reitmeyer shows this in his second edition of his book sacraments and salvation army will at some point quote albert orsborn's song my life must be christ's broken I bread now tell me like that's different than what you just described because uh, i well i would like to hear you talk about can our lives be christ's broken bread um and is that what you're describing 
when people are talking about um, taking the Lord's Supper in this sacramental world, salvation. Do you know what I'm asking there? Yeah, yeah. So the, the reason why I find that, uh, that why, why, I mean, I love the song. The right, right. As you say, I find the, um, the the use of it as a kind of an apologetic for the Salvation Armies. I mean, I, I, see, I think you say that most Salvationists don't understand our position on the Salvation on the sacraments. Right. Um, you know, Jeff, Jeff Ryan always used to say, you know, you speak, you speak to young people and ask them about the sacraments, and they say, we don't do baptism because we used to work with alcoholics. And there's, kind of, <laughs> all kind of, there's all kinds of things we've kind of put into this washing machine. Right, right. Because, we don't, because we're slightly insecure about it, we've never really explained it to people. We, you know, people actually don't know why we do it. Um, so, going to the Bible, I, I, I was, my, in my master's, I was taught by a, um, a brilliant Catholic theologian called Brian Horn, who's a... Um, and he was very, very big into the idea of a sacramental universe, and, I, and I've become very influenced by him in this, which is the idea that actually the whole universe is sacramental. As, as I say, you know, the C.S. Lewis great God made God likes matter because he made it. You know, mm-hmm. the physical world is made by God to right. display His glory, Amen. and to be a means by which uh, creation can be in relationship with God. Right, you know, right, right. And earth are, are due to be, you know, connected. And so for me, the issue is, of course, our lives can be a sign. Yes, yes. There are, this creation is riddled with signs that point towards the creator. Amen. Absolutely riddled. And God uses the most amazing things and sometimes the most bizarre and weird and, you know, wonderful things. And we can all point to times when God's used a song or, or a poster or just this thing that someone stood next to us while we just overheard on the tube or something that came out of the TV or something we thought whilst we were on a, looking at a you know, beautiful landscape. You know, um, I studied um, Jensen, because, this is side to side, you know, because um, when I started doing my PhD, I, I felt there were two great systematic theologians in the world, um, uh, a guy called Wolfhard Pannenberg Absolutely. and Jensen in America. Yeah. Um, I studied Jensen because he was he was more fun than Pannenberg. <laughs> everyone had studied Pannenberg, and right. really done my my book was my PhD was the first published book on Jensen. So he was I felt he was sort of not undiscovered, but certainly uncelebrated. Sure. Anyway, Pannenberg, the other guy, yeah, yeah, came to faith through a sunset. Hmm. He went and watched the sunset. Wow. And became a Christian. One of the most powerful moments in my life was. I was running in Ibiza. There's a very famous nightclub on the beach called the Cafe Del Mar. And I was running over this beach. I wasn't planning to run through this beach. I just got lost. And there was all these clubbers there. And I'm in my, you know, all dressed up for dancing the night away. And I'm here in my sweaty kind of shirt and trainers. And I'm running across this beach. I'm completely out of place. And I've never been there before. I just... And what happens is that the, the reason why this beach is so beautiful is because you have a view of the sunset. Right. And, um, at a certain point, the sun drops, and it basically takes about five seconds, but it sinks into the sea. Wow. Just sinks into yeah. the sea. And it is, it's like it melts. Yes, I it's love that. It's an astonishing moment. And that happens, and then the, they start celebrating and blowing their whistles and dancing. And, of course, they're dancing because the night has begun, and the right. party's here. And I, this is going to sound incredibly soppy. I don't know why it happened. I just stopped, and I watched this happen. And I started to cry, and it was just this realization that our world does revolve around the dying and the rising of the sun. Amen, amen. You know, the whole of this world points. Yes. I've long gone to the point where 
Robert Jensen often says, if, if the, the only thing that really makes sense of the world is the, the gospel and yeah. Jesus and the Trinity. And if, if that isn't it, then probably we should all become nihilists because nothing else can make sense of the world. Mm. The whole world points towards this. So for me, the Christ broken bread thing is really powerful in that, yes, my life, your life, all kinds of people's lives could be a signpost, a sacrament yes. that makes God present in the world and points people towards him. I yes. absolutely believe that. But the reason why it's a crazy line to use as an apologetic is because there's a point that it says my life is like if Christ hadn't broken that bread and shared it with the disciples on that night, we wouldn't have the song and we wouldn't be saying my life right. is broken bread. So if my rice can be Christ's broken bread, it means that Christ's broken bread is really important. And something happened on that night when he broke bread. Amen. It meant we yeah. should remember it. And yes. We should reenact it. So we should become Christ's broken bread because we should remember and reenact that 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 thing that he did on a daily basis yeah as much as possible what he did was important that it was unimportant and i think that's the problem the problem with the line is that when we make something everything it becomes nothing amen yeah so when we say every meal becomes a sacrament then nothing sacramental we take something it becomes nothing right what i want to say is it, it really is something um and and we can't ignore that Right. It, it, there's that tension, like we'll say, and what, what was encouraged after the, I think it was 1996 um, uh, conference that happened uh, that Paul Rader put into place, Spiritual Life Commission, was that, okay, salvationists just need to realize that every meal is can be sacramental. And we need to, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I like, I think that God's grace can be mediated to us in a variety of powerful ways. But yet there's this one special way that it, while salvationists e- even hold divisions of the Salvation Army mm. will um, disobey in this sense, there yeah. uh, there needs to be a sense of an allowance. And then uh, yeah. Phil Needham su- suggests even like just a simple uh, uh, liturgy, and we probably wouldn't use that language, liturgy, for making it happen. Do you think the day would come where the Salvation Army could move towards re-embracing the sacraments within worship? Um, it's not some. I mean, it's one of those bizarre things. When you work for the Salvation Army and you spend your life within the sort of yeah. something, this is something I used to think about a great deal. I have to say that now that most of my life is in a very different world. Oh sure. Um, I don't, it's not something I think about as much. I mean, I think the reality is, um, definitely within my experience, when I was working for the Salvation Army, yeah, I mean, it's where. <laughs> The question is, where is the institution? The truth is, lots of people were finding ways to, you know, celebrate yes. and, um, and finding ways of doing a love feast or, you know, a Lord's Supper type thing. Um, I'm not quite sure whether that's still the case in the UK, but certainly that, that was happening and people were finding very informal ways and hopefully unoffensive ways, right. inoffensive ways of doing it. Um, I would very much like to see the Salvation Army and embrace it um i think there's always this challenge of but that means we're telling people who have been here for lots and lots right. of years that they've been done it they've not been doing it right or they've been doing it wrong right or even worse we've kind of withheld something from right them. right um it's a hard piece that's, that's the hardest piece finding a way through um but in some ways, it feels to me that it's illogical not to. I mean, your point on the end, I mean, Robert Jensen has this lovely point. She says, you know, the reason why churches do do uh, communion uh, and celebrate the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever line you want to call it, yeah, is sure. because at church, you know, I like it. The idea is at church on Sunday, 
you know, we're all there as disciples. Yeah. And we, you know, our life is to basically play out with the actors who continue to act and as disciples in the world. Yeah. And yeah. so it makes sense that at the end of one of our services that someone plays the role of Jesus. Wow. And, Interesting. You know, breaks the bread and pulls and reminds the rest of us of this is what we're here for and this is what we're here to do again yeah, yeah. next week as we go out into the world. And yeah. I'd like the Salvation Army to at least be more mindful of that. Yeah, there's a unity piece too of like being connected to the global church. Um, and there's a little bit, there's a sense of um, our own, uh, I'm sorry to say, arrogance in, you know, often we'll say um, we're more than a church. Um, maybe people on the outside will say we're less than a church. I, we're more or less a church. I mean, there is this definite sense. I mean, 1997 Salvation Story, the Handbook of Doctrine, uh, articulated that we are a church. I mean, it's been very clear. And I, and the best word across the globe that would just, an English word, would to describe what we do is the church. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be like the same institution down the road, but what we do should flow as a result that we're ambassadors of the kingdom and we're trying to, we believe that Jesus can be present. Like you're saying, like all this power, this yeah. powerful language that comes to us from Robert Jensen, yeah. this can be present in our world. And we're doing like, I'm re- responsible um, for a shelter that is called the Red Show Lodge here in Tampa, where we have 120 people who are moving from the street to their feet. This is, this is a part of our legacy. It's just unfortunate that we can't, um, anyway, I see that as an expression of the church, just like I imagine you do, you did when you were running Chapel Street. I mean, as part of yeah. the life, just like you do now when you're working in politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I've never sort of stepped away from full-time ministry. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, when you go and do a job like this, you find the most remarkable ways to, you know, to try and minister to people, um, in politics at the moment, um, in the UK, um, particularly because of the Brexit issue. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, Things are very toxic. Things are very, very tense. Um, you know, we we've had a female member of parliament murdered within the mm. last five years. Wow. You know, um, by 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 you know you know essentially a you know a radicalized you know nationalist terrorist basically. Wow. Um, and so I find myself praying with MPs on a regular basis. Mm. Mm-hmm. Particularly some of the female MPs who who feel very very vulnerable. Wow. Um, uh, find the, the 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 tone of the political de- debate within the palace of Westminster difficult. Wow! And actually live in fear in their in their communities. And again, the opportunity to try and at least in some way be Jesus or yes. point people towards Jesus, or at least sit down and say, "Look, we can talk to Jesus together about this." Yeah, um, is incredibly profound. Um, and I think that you know, again, that comes back to the great positive element of Salvation Army theology, this idea that God is interested in the world, that he can use us, that, um, you know, that he can do great things with us through all manner of means in, in all manner of settings is, yeah. is you know, is the thing that I find kind of most exciting and most, and most kind of, that's, the, that's something I'd fight for as a Salvationist. Yeah, amen. I think you're probably right in terms of, I mean, we're an interesting, my, my in fact, Brian Horn, who is my the, my tutor from my masters, who's a sort of Catholic theologian, always used to say the problem for the Salvation Army is, in some ways, uh, hierarchically, we're not classically Protestant. We're much more Catholic. Right. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> much more of a pope. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, my grandmother, interestingly, was a uh, grew up in Italy in, in the first part of the 20th century and wow. um, converted to Protestantism and became a Salvationist. Then became a Salvation Army officer. Um, and I, I mean, she was an amazing woman in so many ways. Um, 
And in some ways, she would she would found it hard to admit the Salvation Army was a great home for her because there were some similarities to Catholicism. In Interesting. Yeah, it's structural. You know, yeah. Down, you know, we have very, this is our doctrine. These are our orders and regulations. Right, right. The magisterium or whatever. Um, and I think what that sometimes makes it difficult to do is to allow a kind of mixed economy or a, a, a sort of more diverse ecology. So yeah. on the Anglican side of my life, um, you know, when I'm in, in working with Anglican churches in London, which I do a lot as a result of my work, I'm aware that the Anglican Church can be a very, very broad church. Right. You know, you can have um, a priest who doesn't agree with the ordination right. of women. Yeah. He's essentially Catholic. You have far, come far closer to transubstantiation, maybe, on their view of the sacraments. You know, wow. right through to a fresh expression, doing something in a nightclub with a bunch of students. And, you know, and maybe one of the things the Salvation Army needs to get better at is, is fostering those range of expressions mm, mm-hmm. and allowing, I think on this stuff, and I understand why this is difficult. Yes. Um, you know, in my time in the Salvation Army, you know, one territorial commander did say publicly that they wanted, um, in a, in a public setting that they encourage people to, you know, to say if their officer was doing in quote, silly things with great juice and bits of bread. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go the other way and say, we, we actually rather than, rather than, uh, being very hard line and that stuff, we should be allowing some degree of experimentation, innovation. We should trust our officers yeah. to say we're going to try and find ways of being genuinely, authentically salvationist. Yes. Um, and finding ways of doing ministry which helps Jesus to be present in our community and helps people to find Him. And I'd like to see, you know, just a, a little bit more openness and, and desire. And I suspect the answer to your question in terms of whether we'll ever yeah. top down probably results from what might be some of the things that spring fruits up. Yeah. Well, I, I, this would probably, if this whole thing makes it into a podcast, it'll definitely be the longest podcast I had. I think it's because you and I have so much to talk about and I'm, I'm sorry. We've only been, we've only seen each other in the body uh, one time. So uh, that's unfortunate, but Russ, we appreciate hearing your story and what God's doing in your life, in your work, uh, in politics, and particularly, you know, regularly praying for the persecuted church around the world. Keep that up. Yeah, and um, we just trust that God's going to continue to use you and your uh, entrepreneurial gifts for the kingdom. So thanks for joining us on Captain's Corner. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Captain's Corner. If you'd like to learn more about us, please feel free to check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at Sal Army Tampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time.